Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. South Africa isn't the easiest topic to tackle. There's the obvious, of course. Apartheid ended recently enough to be firmly within living memory. And systemic racism is never on people's wish list of topics for this show. But beyond that, or perhaps because of that, South Africa is kind of an estranged cousin within the context of European history. It's formerly British, at least partially English-speaking, and fairly wealthy, but it doesn't get the same mindshare in popular culture as very similar countries like Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. So what's going on here? What was Britain doing in that part of the world in the first place? And is there anything in South Africa's story that can explain this estrangement? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Gary Hallman. Hello. How's it going, Gary? It's going very well. That's good. Uh, we're going to talk today about colonial South Africa. Excellent. Because we love nothing better here on HI 101 than picking nice, safe topics that nobody could ever get upset about. Why would anybody get upset? I don't even understand. Um, that being said, it's a very interesting topic, and I think we're going to have like a really good time doing this one. I'm very excited to do it. It just... Oh, saying colonial South Africa makes me very, very nervous. I'll be honest with you. Before we really get into this, though, I want to talk a little bit, specifically because of that nervousness, um, about some of the limitations of history. This is very high level stuff. And specifically what it is that like history does, like what history is. And the biggest limitation with history is that we put such primacy on written accounts over many other forms of, of uh, knowledge being passed down, that a lot of times as historians, we end up ignoring a lot of information for that primacy of written accounts. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense because what we're trying to do is be as accurate as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this sense that the written word is very like permanent, right? Like it's it's got the sense that if it's written down, that's the way it is. And that's maybe a falsehood, but it's, it's kind of easy to hang your hat on that, right? It's written, that's what it must be. And then, you know, from there, there's sort of developing a narrative or, or a thesis and, and supporting that or, or refuting that with different facts. But at the end of the day, it always comes back to those primary documents and it's always documents. It's written, uh, materials up until basically the 20th century when we can get audio recordings and photographs, things like that. What we end up ignoring a lot of is things like oral traditions, which you hear that and you think, ah, it's being passed down person to person. That sounds really like there's a lot of room for errors being transmitted. Um, yeah, I mean, so is writing when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, like, there's just as much bias in the writer, potentially. Well, not even just bias, but, uh, you know, you look at the 
the, the Bible is always the most like common example of this, but like drift from like people copying it out over yeah. generations and generations yeah. and wording changing and things like that and things, you know, slipping their way in. You look at old, old versions of Homer that are, you know, uh, uh, preserved uh, over thousands of years and look at the difference between that and something that would have come from the Middle Ages. And it's like, oh, this like entire section of the story has just been dropped in there somehow, right? <laughs> Yeah, we're going to drop the boring parts out of the Bible. Just stick to the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, we, we really need to spice this up. So what you end up doing, um, even when you're looking at more of like an archaeological side of history, like when you're looking at the actual like uh, physical evidence outside of writing, people get hung up on things that look like writing, right? Uh, think about, for example, there's this script called Linear A, and it's from the Minoan uh, civilization on the island of Crete 3,000 years ago. We cannot read Linear A. There are people who devote their lives to trying to figure out how to uh, how to de um, decipher this so we can read what they wrote down. And it's like, we got to figure this out. Then you look at something like the Incan uh, civilization. And for the longest time, the line on that is like, oh, they didn't have writing. Just straight up, no writing. Don't worry about it. We don't know anything about their history. But it turns out they've got these things called kipas. And a kipa is this... Um, this long, there's sort of like a root uh, string, and off of the string are, are hundreds, sometimes thousands of strings come, kind of coming down. They've got little knots tied in them, and they thought these were like for keeping count of sheep or llamas or what have you, and that was about it. But the more we learn about it, the more we believe this is actually a writing system, uh, system that was used for a lot more than just record keeping. Mm -hmm. And the more that we kind of dig into it, the more we realize that even early Europeans making contact with the Incas were writing down how to decipher kipas and, and the information contained therein. And we just ignored it. And it's kind of like, okay, so there's this entire system of records that we're kind of just ignoring and it makes for a really incomplete picture of what happened there. That doesn't mean that nothing happened to the Incas. Far the opposite. It means that as historians, we can only go off of what we have at the moment. And if we haven't focused on pulling that information out, it's kind of not there. And the amount of work that it's going to take to someday pull that out is, is, is enormous. doesn't mean it's not important or worth doing. It does mean that anyone in the world who didn't have writing, as far as historians are concerned, basically didn't exist. This brings me to the topic of South Africa. We're going to be talking about Europeans a lot today, which is a little bit ironic because South Africa is the place in the world where human beings and even the ancestors of human beings have been the longest outside of like the cradle of civilization in Kenya and Sudan. Um, there are hominid ancestors of humans that have been, have been discovered in South Africa um, between two and three million years old. Um, it's, it's some of the oldest uh, remains that we found outside of, again, sort of Kenya. Uh, even modern humans, the, uh, the groups that moved into South Africa were the first sort of split in human genetic lines. It's kind of okay. the first uh, the first main group to break off. And the people who lived in that area, they would uh, they were known as the Khoisan and or or would become the Khoisan people, made up of two groups. The San were kind of more of a hunter-gatherer group. The Khoi Khoi were um, sort of pastoral farmers. There was a lot of like uh, shepherding and things like that. So it was moving herds around to okay. different areas for grazing, not necessarily farming as in, you know, put down stakes, raise crops. So a little bit more nomadic. Yeah. Okay. Very much so. At one point in the, in time, um, in fact, for a very large portion of human history, the Khoisan made up the largest demographic uh, 
group in the entire world. Oh, wow. This was a massive part of human history, except we don't have any history here because they didn't have writing, at least not as we understand it. We've got nothing to indicate any sort of writing. Okay. Oral traditions, yes. A massive, rich oral tradition. Unfortunately, by the time that people who did have writing started encountering them, they didn't really care about the oral traditions until there were so few Khoisan left that there really wasn't an oral tradition to record in a meaningful way. And most of this has been lost. So that's kind of my five minute long disclaimer about uh, who we're going to talk about today and why. As you can maybe tell, this is not going to be the happiest episode we've ever done. But that's okay. Are you I think telling it's a, me there's not a happy ending to this? There's really, really not. Ugh. So these Khoisan moved down into South Africa a hundred thousand years ago, um, give or take. And by about two thousand years ago, they had moved right down to the Cape of Good Hope, the the southernmost por- uh, point in Africa. Um, it's also really uh, probably a good idea when you're listening to this to kind of take a look at just how freaking big Africa is, because that's not a thing that people do a good job of, of conceptualizing for some reason. Well, it's because of maps, right? It is. Common maps. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a big problem with it. Um, the, the most common projections that are used for maps uh, do a really good job of making um, places along the equator much smaller and Europe. places away from the equator look much bigger. So you get Greenland looking the size of Africa, which it's not. Yep. Not even remotely. No, Africa is very big it's very 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 big and and uh it it took people a while to get down there but eventually they did there would be other um groups that would move into the area after the khoisan um and they would speak a a language group called bantu and that's going to be the majority of the tribes that we're going to be talking about today there's a there's a giant group of of tribes called the nguni uh the Tswana, the shangan songa i'm going to your name today by the way i'm so sorry <laughs> dutch is really really hard um bantu uh <laughs> much harder um these are languages that involve uh, uh clicks in a lot of cases yeah it's it's i i don't i, I lack the capacity to pronounce <laughs> a lot of the words that we're going to try to do today so uh for that i apologize please be please be gentle interestingly enough the, the clicks that enter the bantu language actually come from the khoisan um, okay. It's it's a feature that that kind of migrated from uh, intermingling of the of the two groups, and it's it's not as though there's like a homogenous like third group that comes out of all of this. Um, the the Khoisan still remain, um, well, two uh, major uh, groups separate from the Bantu groups, but in the the very southernmost part of Africa, there is sort of this intermingling of of different uh, tribes and language groups. Um, the Bantu tribes that come down are going to bring a lot more technology along with them. There's some okay. uh, rudimentary uh, metalwork and things like that. Um, you know, simple machines. Whereas the Khoisan were like very, you, you could you could describe them as Stone Age fairly accurately in terms of their level of tool making. They just didn't really need a whole lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, the south of Africa. The very south is actually fairly rich farmland. Um, when you get a little bit further north, um, a few hundred kilometers to a few thousand kilometers in, and you get into the veldt, the the sort of uh, dry grasslands, it's a little bit more sparse. But right on that that southernmost peninsula, it's it's quite rich, and um, these people found it relatively easy to to thrive down there. 
I'm not going to paint any picture of sort of like an idyllic uh, paradise where all these people lived in harmony. That's not even remotely close to true, but they tended to keep in such small population numbers that it was fairly easy to, for a group to kind of stake out a living for themselves okay. without necessarily stepping on anyone else's toes. Bumping into the neighbor too much? Yeah. And, you know, you're going to get the odd skirmish here and there, of course, but that's the story of all humanity. So, yeah. you know, is what it is. Again, while we know that all of this is really complicated uh, between these tribes, most of this has been pieced together from archaeological records, from uh, genetic uh, studies, from things like linguistic studies, uh, which is all really interesting stuff. But unfortunately, we have no stories of these people. We have ideas of, of mass population movements and, and, and things like that. But that doesn't really give a, a very rich or rewarding picture of, of anyone's life. And I think the single place where I find this the most uh, disappointing is finding out that there was actually a fairly major kingdom in this region about a thousand years ago, around a thousand, uh, around the year 1075 or so, a kingdom uh, known as, uh, oh no, Mapungubwe, I'm so sorry, was founded um, kind of near the current border of South Africa and, Zimb and Zimbabwe. Okay. And this would have been something along the lines of a, a, a local leader managing to gather sort of a, a terminal velocity of, of support from surrounding tribes to the point that they became a dominant power in the region. And this kingdom became fairly sophisticated and fairly wealthy uh, for the standards of the time. 1075, we're talking about um, sort of the height of... Um, Muslim Africa, right? And okay. so they were trading from all the way down in South Africa up to um, Arabia. They were trading across wow. the sea to India, to China. They specialized in making these um, extremely colorful uh, ceramic beads, um, as well as some sort of simple metalworked uh, jewelry and other kind of luxury goods. And they okay. would trade these, again, for, for thousands of kilometers. Um, Trade with India, again, isn't something that's unheard of in this era, but normally you think of it in the context of the Silk Road, you know, yeah. trading across to um, to Europe. And, of course, you know that it's they're trading down to North Africa as well. But to go as far south as as South Africa is, is a it's a pretty good hike. These people were making things that that made that journey worth it. We don't know a thing about them. Hmm. Other than this archaeological record. And we know that because we found Chinese, Indian, Arabic yeah, goods in say, that region. I mean, all three of those cultures have a pretty rich written history. Yeah. And like fairly good at, at documenting. So that's that's kind of how we figured out. Yeah. What well, these and we guys would have found Mapungubwe goods in those okay. places as well. So you see that transfer of goods. But again, it's this archaeological record. And we don't know anything about the people who are actually yeah. making those things, who are actually living in these in this in the society. We don't know how it was. Uh, we, we don't know how it was structured. We don't we like anything about it. And it's like that. I, I want to know so much more about that. It's it's just it's so mysterious and, and so um, faintly sketched out. And it's it's really a, it's really a shame. It was abandoned by around the year 1300. It's pure speculation as to why it collapsed. Um, people th throw things around like maybe climate change forced them out of the area. Maybe the, the hunting became scarce and mm -hmm. they needed to move on. I don't know. No one knows. Interesting. Let's move on to somewhere that we actually have some records of and talk about the Portuguese Age of Discovery. In 1394, Prince Henry of Portugal was born. 
this is like a third son kind of prince okay which in a lot of cases got something to prove and a little bit more interesting than first sons and no responsibilities yeah he's not going to be king he can do whatever he wants with all that money (laughs) being the like third and fourth prince must be like the best thing in history to be I, I yeah I I bet it's not bad if your family's wealthy enough to support three or four princes. If you're some like poor German prince in like the 1700s and you're the third son, yeah, sorry man, it's the priesthood for you. But um, <laughs> but yeah, Prince Henry he did okay. He had some funds to work with, and Prince Henry was he he was captured by two stories of the day. The first was the story of uh. uh mythical figure known as prester john have you ever heard of prester john i've heard the name but i've i'm refresh my memory as the the legend well prester john is this character that has existed in some form or another for nearly 1500 years before the myth kind of died off there was this idea that somewhere in the world there was this lost christian kingdom somewhere in asia somewhere and that this man prester john had found in this kingdom as sort of a bastion of the Christian faith among all these heathens. Heathens, yeah. And um, that someday, and, and, and that by being separated from the rest of Europe, there was some, some somehow a, like a purer version of Christianity there. And someday, you know, they'd be able to find it and uh, learn all these new truths. And the story of Prester John would kind of rear its head once in a while as this kind of they would discover something and they would go, ah, finally, this is proof of Prester John. And they would take all these real world events and they would kind of weave Prester John into it. Mm-hmm. Um, as people found out about Genghis Khan, it was discovered that like Genghis Khan's father-in-law was, was Christian and that there was this whole thing where he didn't want his daughter marrying a Mongolian. And, you know, anyways, this whole, this whole story came up about it and it's like, oh, maybe he's Prester John. <laughs> and it's like, no, he wasn't. But, it, you know, just enough, uh, just hearing that somebody in Mongolia was Christian and in a, in a, in a position of power was enough to kind of jog that memory, that story. Well, they were a pretty open culture in terms of religion, were they not? The Mongolians? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they really were. Um, they, they were fairly, basically as long as you paid your taxes, they didn't care what you believed. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's be cool or die. Uh, that could be a, that, that could be their, their just, motto. Just be cool. Just yeah. be cool. Yeah, pretty much. There was never actually a Prester John. There isn't really like even a, a historical figure that we could go like, ah, oh, this is the real, pre-. you know, this is where the myth comes from. But it's all this, the, all these years of contact with Asia in sort of this non-direct way via the Silk Road, right? You get these stories that come along the Silk Road. Um, we've talked about it before on the show, but like the Silk Road isn't like somebody starts in China and ends up in Venice, right? Like that's not how that works. It's a series of little trips along the road and, and people would kind of travel their own little bit and, you know, move, move, uh, move goods just along their section. And so you never really met anyone from the other end of the road. You just yeah. got these stories that traveled along with the goods. And so it was really easy to kind of, uh, broken telephone. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And so this kingdom was the kind of thing that, um, when you're drawing up a map in like the 1300s, you know, on one port, one part you would, you know, draw in your, your sea serpent, right? Here be monsters. And another part, it's like, oh yeah, here's the kingdom of Prester John. It's right over here. Like they didn't know, but like they were pretty sure it was out there. And Henry was no different. The other story that really grabbed his, his attention, um, was a much more real figure. Um, Mansa Musa, 
have you heard this name before? Never. There was an empire in um, Western Africa known as the Mali Empire. And, and this empire contained um, gold mines okay. of just astronomical proportions. Like they, they had so much gold in them. And, you know, this, this whole region was kind of under uh, Muslim influence and, and Mansa Musa was no different. He was, he was Muslim. One of the uh, tenets of the Muslim faith is that if you're able at least once in your life, make a pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Yep. In 1324, Mansa Musa made his pilgrimage. Um, he brought a retinue of hundreds, maybe thousands with him. And he brought so much gold with him that he collapsed the economy of the entire Mediterranean just by traveling with this gold and and paying for things in gold as he traveled. Cairo was a, a wreck after he had gone through. He flooded the, the market with so much just gold. The inflation that it was, was so crazy. It ended up being basically worthless. He made his pilgrimage. He went to Mecca. He spent some time there. He came back, realized how badly it had ruined everything and tried to correct it by buying gold at as high of interest rates as he could possibly find to try and correct the market. And as far as we know, this is the only uh, recorded incident of a single man managing to control the entire gold market in the Mediterranean. Mansa Musa was probably the most wealthy individual in all of history. Every once in a while, you'll see, you'll see a, uh, an article where they try to estimate his worth. Yeah. It's it's impossible. Impossible. It's pure speculation. He was worth trillions of dollars. There was a lot of money there. Interesting. So Henry is going, well, out there, there is a mythical Christian kingdom. I'd like to find it. Also out there is this man who has so much gold. I'd like to find him. And he liked boats. He liked them a lot. He hired the best boat makers that the, uh, that the Mediterranean had ever seen. The problem with boats in this era, ships, I should say, I should stop calling them boats. I know better than that. Boats are for like afternoon lake rides. A ship is a boat that can carry other boats. A ship, is a, a ship is a big boat. Yeah. Um, you, you call them ships. They've earned it. <laughs> the ships that were being used in the Mediterranean were... Not the most stable ships because the Mediterranean is a very stable body of water and you don't really need like a well-built ship to travel safely on the Mediterranean. The Atlantic is a little bit different. Right. You need better sails, number one, because the winds are much um, steadier on the Atlantic and you can't just wait for a wind to come up and take you where you need to go. Mm-hmm. And you also need a boat with a, uh, a deeper keel. So like the, the point that the hull comes down to yep. in the water makes it more sturdy, makes it more stable, uh, resistant to kind of tipping from the waves. And so he had shipwrights under him uh, develop a ship called the Caraval. And this is a small, fast, light ship, very maneuverable. The sails are kind of oriented in a way that you know, as opposed to like the sort of single mast, really square sail. Yeah. This is the first time they did a couple of more triangular sails. And that allows you to sail uh, what you call close to the wind. So it gives you the ability to capture the wind and still sail almost at the wind. Okay. Some fancy rigging stuff. Europeans hadn't really had access to this type of technology for a very, very long time. They just hadn't needed it. The Atlantic isn't where ships were. The Mediterranean was such a center of their world that that's where sure. their, their um, uh, focus was. But Henry wanted to go further. By the way, no one called him Henry the Navigator in his life, but that's what history is going to end up calling him. Um, we're still going to use it because it's a very good name. He started sailing along the coast of Africa, 
with these with these ships. Some of these voyages he would have gone on himself. Other ones he basically just chartered and sent off. After a while, there was too much exploration going on for him to be there for every voyage, right? Absolutely. So at this point, he's basically making like minor journeys. Yeah. And then so, returning to Portugal. Yeah, exactly. And so this is the era where they discover the Cape Verde Islands, the Canary Islands. Okay. Um, they go as far south as Sierra Leone. Which, if you look at a map of Africa and Europe, it doesn't look Not like it's that, that far. far down. But before this, Europeans had never gone any further south, with any regularity at least, than um, Cape Bojador, which is like Western Sahara territory, like just south of uh, Morocco. Okay. So there's that whole, like, there's a territory south of Morocco, which is technically under Moroccan control now, which is the Western Sahara territory. That that's so interesting to me. So like there was never any reason to go further than that at this point in history. It's not that there was no reason to go any further than that. It's that they were sailing along the Sahara Desert. Right. So if you anything went wrong, you're pooched. You can only go as far as half of your supplies. And even then, do you really want to risk that? Because yeah. what are the winds going to be like? So these caravels allowed them to go further south. The other major discovery in this era are the trade winds. The trade winds are a system of winds kind of caused by the currents in the Atlantic that mean that near the equator, the wind tends to be uh, very steadily an easterly wind, so blowing east to west, whereas farther north in the Atlantic, they tend to be blowing west to east, Gulf Stream and whatnot. So what sailors would do before is just sail down the coast and then try and get back up the coast, and it was very difficult. What they would do in Henry's era was they would sail down the coast, and then they would sail out west, out into the Atlantic, and northward, um, using that uh, the easterly wind near the, uh, near the equator, they would sail uh, west and north until they got to the spot where the trade winds turned uh, westerly again. basically follow the Gulf back up? Follow the Gulf back up to Portugal. Okay. It made it much more reliable to get home, which was what allowed them to go further south. They did discover natives who were willing to trade them both gold and slaves. Um, so Henry started making quite a bit of money. And this Portuguese exploration would continue after Henry's death uh, in 1460 because uh, a new goal had come up, um, specifically the spice trade. Okay. In 1453, the, uh, um, the Ottomans had taken uh, Constantinople and the Silk Road was effectively cut off because the Ottomans decided they weren't going to allow trade through to the Europeans anymore. This is what prompts uh, Columbus to go west but before he did that, a much more sensible option was, let's see if we can get south around Africa and up to India. The Portuguese were already doing it. And what they had sort of started doing with these um, kind of trading posts is they decided, like, we don't need to, like, own all this territory. All we need to do is set little outposts. Yeah. And these outposts are going to trade with the locals. And they're going to be places where we can pull our ship into a bay. We can uh, refill our casks with, uh, with uh, fresh water. We can buy some food. And we can continue on our way. And really all they would defend was like the bay and like a couple of warehouses, basically. And this allowed them to continue further and further down the coast without any significant outlay of, of resources. Okay. And the locals were happy to have them. I mean, the, the goods that the Europeans were trading were of, of high quality as far as they were concerned and, you know, win-win. It took until uh, 1488 for Bartolomeo Diaz to become the first... European to reach the Cape of Good Hope, to reach the southern uh, southernmost point on Africa. So they were just working their way down that coast. The thing is, 
you have to go a half of a world down on that coast before you can come back north. So there's a pretty established trade route at at this point. Like their their launching point to get down south is yeah they continue more and putting, more embedded yeah okay. so they'll they'll kind of get to their their previous fort. Um, they'll take enough supplies to the next point to establish a new fort and then go back. And now they've got one more spot gotcha. down the coast. Um, just sort of, you know, extending that chain. They're leapfrogging, basically. Yeah, exactly. But their their eventual goal is to get to India. It's just that you have to go so far before you can cut east. So, so far. And there were there were significant worries at this point that there wasn't there wasn't a way. Like yeah. you, you couldn't get there. Um, so getting around the Cape of Good Hope was a big deal. Um, DS wouldn't actually get um, really any further than that, but he did, um, you know, he did enter the Indian Ocean um, and he did stop in Mossel Bay, which would be part of South Africa. So he was really the first European to stop there. I mean, he was there for a couple days. Like, he didn't really do anything of any yeah. importance. Notoriety. Or... He's, he's the guy who set foot, right? He was followed up a few years later, 1497, by Vasco da Gama. He was actually the first one to reach India. He got all the way around Africa, went all the way to India, brought goods back. Very, very good proof concept. Um, Spice trade is now open again to Europe. The whole Columbus thing wasn't exactly working out well with not getting to India. Yeah, no kidding. Um. Da Gama had reached uh, the Great Fish River in South Africa on December 16th. This is sort of on the eastern side of the bottom of Africa. You're kind of coming back on the other side of the U. And um, December 16th, it was close to Christmas, so they end up uh, naming the, the the territory Natal, which means Christmas in, um, in Portuguese. Um, didn't really settle anything there, but the, the territory gets the name. By the end of the 1600s, though... Um, Portugal actually becomes more focused on the new world. Before we really knew what was going on with North and South America, um, Spain and Portugal had basically gone to the Pope and asked to divide the world in half. Yeah. Anything that was outside of uh, Europe, um, west of a, an imaginary line in the Atlantic, the Spanish got. And east of that, the Portuguese got. And the Portuguese were pretty sure they got a very good deal because they were already exploring down Africa and they were they knew they were close. They felt like they were very close to getting that route to India. And they thought that the Spanish were suckers for wanting all the other stuff. It turns out that this line just barely cuts through South America, which is why today Brazil is Portuguese or speaks Portuguese and the rest of South America speaks Spanish. Interesting. Yeah. But, you know, by the 17th century, they've determined that Brazil is a thing and it's actually pretty resource rich. So they've stopped spending as much time with uh, Africa and uh, started developing uh, Brazil. They do still have their system of forts, though. And they have an interested um, client, the Dutch East India Company, um, also known as the VOC, which stands for some Dutch words that I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce <laughs> because I could not get a handle on it. I tried so many times. Um, we're going to stick with Dutch East India Company. <laughs> the Dutch East India Company was... A really interesting company um, from a from a historical standpoint. They were the first uh, transnational corporation. They were the first publicly owned corporation. They basically had a crown charter from uh, the king of the Netherlands to trade spice with, um, uh, well, with Asia. They would kind of be fairly general about it, but they had leeway to trade with India, with China, with uh, Southeast Asia, um, and it was just to get spice from there back to the Netherlands. That was their entire purpose. And 
like like any good corporation they were very like profit driven because they had shareholders like absolutely honest to goodness shareholders the VOC decided to use the Portuguese system of forts to get around Africa and get to India, which made a lot of fiscal sense. It was already there. It was already, already well established. I can't imagine how long that would take by boat. Uh, so at months this point, months. at this point to get from Portugal or the Netherlands to India, how mm-hmm. long are we talking about? That's a good question. I couldn't tell you exactly. I, If I had to guess, I'd say somewhere around three months, but possibly Ugh. more. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, there's no Suez Canal yet. Yep, nope. Most of these ports actually worked out fairly well for the VOC, but they needed a little bit more frequent stops. They're they're not sailing caravels anymore. They're selling big, they're sailing big uh, cargo ships, which don't sail as quickly. Like barges that yeah. go very slowly. Mm-hmm. And so they need a little bit more frequent stops. And while they're finding a lot of trading partners kind of in between the old forts, one place that they don't have a good trading partner is in what would become South Africa around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, the problem is that these people that we've talked about previously, the Khoisan, don't farm. Other places they could buy grains. Okay. They, the, the people at the Cape would sell them animals, sure, but they didn't have grains to sell them. And so they went, okay, well, we need something here. And the solution was, well, we'll just we'll do it ourselves. And in 1652, uh, a man named uh, Jan van Riebeck took uh, a, a contingent down to the Cape of Good Hope and on April 6th founded Cape Town at, uh, right on the Cape as a waypoint for the Dutch East India Company. Huh. And that was the first permanent settlement of Europeans in South Africa. So I think that's a good place to take a quick break and when we come back we'll start talking about early days in that settlement i'm back on hi 101 here with gary hallman interested to learn more about cape town cape town um yeah it's it's a it's a subject that when i was going into the research i knew i knew a little bit i knew broad strokes there's a lot of stuff in here that was very new for me as well well it just kind of strikes me you know what i you really i mean this is my own you know personal anecdote but you know i i personally haven't heard too often of european settlers throughout africa like forming their own colonies right right and, and that's actually the interesting thing about the uh the cape colony is that this is really the only place that they did that in this era everywhere else the voc is so focused on just like get the ships supplied and move on they don't want colonies colonies are expensive right it's very expensive to set up a colony and they don't want to support yeah things like well, education then you have to be responsible or, for it right? yeah exactly and this is a this is a company this is not it's not even a government entity that's setting up this colony. This is this is the this is this is SpaceX setting up a colony on the moon <laughs> because they need that place to resupply on their way out to space. It's not something that they're doing because they want to. It's because like you, you got to make it work. That's somehow. a really interesting comparison. I never would have thought to think of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Like sure, it's just you know a logistical necessity to. To make this investment. Yep. Yeah, they can only carry so much food on these ships. And the more food that they carry, the less room there is for cargo. But why not hire and teach locals how to do it? Was it just... 
you know, they're so used to subsistence. That would imply that there was any sort of base whatsoever to start from. Right. So you're talking about taking a society that is essentially Stone Age hunter-gatherers and giving them, like, the gift of agriculture, like Prometheus on high, and expecting it to, like, go very well for you versus, like, ah, we'll take 50 guys down and just... Pay them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it just doesn't make sense to work with the locals in that capacity. Besides, I'm not necessarily sure that the people making these decisions necessarily believe that the Khoisan are capable of learning those skills. And I don't think I'm being overly harsh in my criticism on, in, in that sense. Um, this is a this is a, a strong era of, of European uh, superiority. Yeah. And yeah, the, the idea that local people um, might hmm, let, let me let me try and rephrase this. There's definitely this belief in this era that you are where you are in the natural order of things for a reason and like a divine reason. And the idea that somebody might not have farming because they just hadn't figured it out yet, that doesn't make sense to somebody in the 1650s from the Netherlands. What makes sense is that there is something innately inferior about them that has prevented them from developing this knowledge. Well, I don't see how that's any different than the, you know, line of reasoning that led to the slave trade in It's not. in South America. It's and it's it's exactly in line. It's the exact same reasoning. And and that's why they wouldn't go as far as to like, you know, here's here's a hoe, here's how you plant stuff, here's, you know, this this is what, you know, harvesting wheat looks like. Like it's not it's not an option that seems possible to them, let alone viable. Um, so yeah, no, that's, it's, it's an interesting question, but no, it's, it's not, there, there was no one even close enough to that level that they could consider, um, at a gap that could be, uh, uh, bridged by some teaching. Whereas these other forts, they're encountering societies that are more, uh, they've been touched by like muslim influence and and all the things that kind of go along with that like or have developed agriculture on their own i mean okay. the the level of sophistication varies so much throughout africa which let's you know stress again is an incredibly large geographical area right and the 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 variance of um sort of sophistication of various peoples in that continent uh, varies wildly at this point in time and yeah some of that is is influence bleeding through from the muslim world some of it is what they've developed independently some of the stuff that you know the europeans are using as earmarks of of civilization just simply don't work in those places and they're not understanding the ways in which these people have developed to their environment right yeah it's it's, it's so complicated you know it just kind of makes me think you know you do think of africa as being a much smaller place like oh like how difficult could it be to get from you know Egypt to South Africa, like I can mm-hmm. see it on the map. But one thing that really brought it in perspective for anybody who can listen, if you've got two seconds to go to Google, there's this great image that Time Magazine did, and uh, they just showed how many times China can fit into Africa. Yeah, and it's you know you just seeing it on the map, you're like, wow, Africa is so much bigger yeah. than Europe, like yeah. massive, yeah. huge. Yeah, it's 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 gigantic, and um. So, so yeah, a lot of the people that they're interacting with in these forts do have fairly sophisticated agriculture. And it's like, oh, okay, we know what's going on here. We understand this. We can trade with this. Um, their 
impression of South Africa is that it's empty land or might as well be. And this is the same fallacy that comes up in, in, uh, in North America, especially, right? Oh, the, there's not really people here. Yeah. Even though they're absolutely a hundred percent are, but you know, they're not European people, so they don't count is, is kind of the vibe that ends up coming off of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so they go, well, we'll just set up our own farms. Indigenous population in this, uh, in, in the, um, sort of the vicinity of the Cape colony at this point in time was about 15,000 when, uh, when the settlers landed, um, pretty small. Okay. Rebeck decided to basically offer this farmland almost entirely to retiring, uh, VOC employees. So basically you could go back to the very crowded, tiny Netherlands, or once you retire, we're going to give you land at a fairly good price, lease it to you at a fairly good price, and you can be self-sufficient here. You can have your own land. Now, they do have to grow the specific foods that the VOC wants them to because okay. they need to fill some quotas. Yeah. And they do have to sell it to the company at fixed prices because company can't lose money on this but free land but free land and there is some um of course there's some some allure to that right um and there's there's plenty of people who end up choosing to go to cape colony uh as a retirement plan and the vast majority of them are going to be dutch um but you are also going to get employees of the voc from uh uh, various various german principalities from scandinavia so that it's it's not an entirely homogenous group that being said pretty much everyone who ends up living at the colony uh ends up speaking dutch uh all those other languages more or less phase out these people would be known as uh free burgers um so free citizens that being said once they kind of got there they weren't really that happy with how much money they were making because of all these price controls and these uh limits on on the crops that they could grow and the voc wasn't really that happy with the whole situation either because they didn't really want to support the cost of all these yeah colonies and so they kind of got into a bit of a, a back and forth butting of heads and unfortunately the solution that worked best for everybody was we need some labor here that isn't getting paid gotcha rebeck decided it would be um impolite i suppose to enslave the locals and so you actually got a lot of uh slaves brought brought in from initially from indonesia actually indonesia and malaysia well i imagine you know when you're dealing with a population that's like thousands of people more than your tiny little settlement yeah it's probably not a good idea not necessarily and it was at that tenuous spot where they didn't necessarily feel worried about defending cape town itself from the locals but the idea of being alone on your own farm with these people around who you know for the most part weren't that hostile all things considered um the idea of being alone is still a little bit much yeah so um they tried not to antagonize them for the most part. Um, this slave trade would eventually expand to slaves from Madagascar, from uh, further up the east coast of Africa and kind of the Mozambique uh, area. And very quickly, uh, the population of, of South Africa became um, fairly diverse. Meanwhile, the, the indigenous peoples, mainly the Khoisan, uh, were exposed to smallpox. 
And as we know from the Americas, exposure to smallpox uh, in a, in a so population that has never encountered it before and has no immunity goes very, very poorly. And, and you see similar results in the, in the Khoisan. They were decimated by the diseases. And I mean, it took a couple of decades for, for it to really kind of catch fire within the population, but they, they lost significant members of, or significant numbers of population. Um, military forces under the command of the VOC had kind of staked out land for the colony in a few battles with the locals okay. and managed to sort of control the area fairly easily. Between that and the disease, Khoisan civilization, society in that area, more or less collapsed by 1700 or so. And by that point, only 50 years into the the uh, the existence of the colony, the Dutch actually uh, uh, replaced a fairly large portion of their uh, slaves with, um, well, they would call them wage laborers, but in, essentially indentured servants from the local populations. Okay. They would employ them in... in um, shepherding uh, uh raising herds of animals because that's what they were good at um and they would manage to kind of trap them into debt structures that meant they would uh never do anything but that for the rest of their lives okay the colony actually ended up continuing to diversify um specifically 1688 um the edict of nantes is repealed uh that's when louis the 14th essentially takes away uh, all the rights of the Huguenots, the the um, French Protestants, okay. and they end up being driven out of the the country. A lot of them end up going to the United States, um, but there's several hundred end up going down to Cape Colony and integrating there. So again, you get another diverse population kind of rolled into all of this. So you have kind of French influences. They'll end up speaking Dutch, but there are French names that'll end up in the population. Um, you have the, the Dutch majority, obviously, in terms of the Europeans. You have German, Scandinavian. Uh, you have slight you know, German influences entering the, uh, the language and the, uh, the language actually starts differentiating itself from Dutch. It that becomes, quickly. Yeah. It, it only takes, uh, it only takes a few decades for it to start differentiating. It's just this isolation, right? They're so far. They're so far away. And they've got these influences of both other languages and local languages. It's not as though the um, relationship with the local people is entirely antagonistic. I mean, it's, it's clearly one-sided and clearly exploitive, but um, they do talk. Yeah. So it's a fairly strongly uh, Protestant community, um, mainly Dutch Reformed Church, but there's some Lutherans from the, from the German influence there. They had very, very strict rules about legitimacy of children. Okay. In what way? In that it must be from a marriage uh, in order for things like inheritance rights to be a thing. Also, anytime that you have a situation in which people are living in close proximity with slaves, you have mixed race children from the, uh, well, generally from, from rape of slaves. Um, people tend to sugarcoat that a little bit. Let's call it what it is. So you get this new group, um, depending on where the slaves were from, they would call them either Cape Coloreds or Cape Malays um, from Malaysia, right? They're also absorbed into colony society, but they're not given full rights. Okay. And they end up developing um, a fairly distinct society from the the main uh, Reavers. Uh, they end up calling themselves um, Griquas, the the settlers would call them bastards, but they chose their own name for themselves. It's actually really interestingly uh, similar to the the Métis people okay. in uh, in Canada. I can I can see a 
pretty where analogy. S- yeah, some some people will use it just to mean sort of half white, half in- indigenous, but that's not really what that they have means. Their it own means linguistic traditions, their own cultural, cultural traditions, traditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and in general are treated more like indigenous people than they are uh, European. Um, but not having a, a, a specific native tribe to belong to, they sort of form their own. Um, no, it's it's much more complicated than just being sort of mixed race. Um, what I'm trying to show with all of this sort of interaction is that from the beginning, the Cape Colony is an incredibly diverse place. It's also a very stratified place. And while the population percentage-wise is far more non-white than it is white, the white people have all the power in this. And, um, you know, if you're looking for some sort of root cause, which is, is never really a reductionist like, you know, or being reductionist is never that helpful for, but if you're going to look for a root cause, I mean, look no further. This is already a, a, a an ethnically complex place that they've just made significantly more ethnically complex. They've basically just replaced the dominant social group there. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. But you get this distinct uh, culture for uh, white Europeans as well. Um, they start around this time referring to their their language as Afrikaans rather than Dutch. Um, and it really becomes its own society. It's 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 not that long before um, to be from Cape Colony is very, very, very different than being from the Netherlands. This butting of head between the VOC and the settlers um, frequently comes to a head and the solution is basically the same each time. The settlers started calling themselves Boers around this time. It just means farmer, basically, uh, in Dutch. And it would always start with the Trekboren, which are the, um, they're, they're basically ranchers. It's the people who would, uh, they, they live kind of semi-nomadically, uh, pastoral kind of moving animal herds around, similar to a ranch. It's not exactly the same, but close enough analogy. It would usually start with them. They would just go ahead and settle beyond the VOC-controlled region. Okay. And they went, you don't have any power over us over uh, out here. Leave us alone. We don't want to deal with you anymore. If you want to come and buy my stuff, that's fine, but you're going to pay my prices for it. Yeah. Meanwhile, leave me alone. You don't own this land. Exactly. The VOC would then expand the limits of the the territory to encompass the last wave of, of Trekboren, and the the colony would, would expand out farther. Throughout all of this, the Trekboren are fighting the Khoisan to establish these new frontiers. Khoisan are being pushed farther and farther back. They're frequently coming to violence with uh, with these uh, poor settlers, and it's leading to a lot of animosity between the two groups. Um, but the Trekboren would rather fight for their land than they would uh, live under the control of VOC. There's an independent streak in this colony. These conflicts, though, would lead to either the displacement, the enslavement, or the destruction of countless small tribes. Mm-hmm. It's important to realize that the, the basic unit of these Khoisan is like 30 people. Like, we're not talking about giant political groups here, right? It's it's very much like a family group. And um, for one of these groups to disappear, you, you, you'd barely notice it. And um, just just because no one would 
care no one would note it that's just a thing that happened out there yeah and it's 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 really kind of terrible by the end of the 18th century so basically by the year 1800 more than 60,000 Europeans lived in the Cape Colony it had grown wow. quite a bit and the borders had reached through this process of, of continuous expansion further, and further out it reached more than a thousand kilometers from the coast the territory had become massive the borders were at this point running up against uh, tribes that were big enough that they were actually a legitimate threat to the VOC. And they started getting into situations where they had to actually establish treaties with these people and establish something resembling borders in order not to get into larger conflicts. Uh, the main one that we're uh, running up against at this point uh, is the eastern border of the territory um, where there was a, a tribe called the Kosa which uh, they're, they're actually still a fairly uh, prominent ethnic group in South Africa today. Um, so they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Hey, fun fact, completely random. Seen Black Panther yet? No. The language that they speak in Black Panther is Kosa. Oh, okay. Which is actually like, it's got a click in it. I'm not going to do the click, but it's like Kosa or something. I don't know. I'm sorry. Oh, I love that. I'm that gonna, was so good. I'm going to cut that out. It no, awful. no, don't um, cut it out. It was wrong. I didn't even do the click, right? There's like 13 different clicks or something like that. Different like high clicks, low clicks. It just, they, they sound different apparently. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. I, again, I'm, I'm just a guy doing a podcast. I have to crank <laughs> one of these out a month. I don't have time to learn all this stuff. Uh, anyways, by the time the borders settle, things are fairly calm in this, okay. in this colony. It's, it sort of levels out a little bit. Um, it reaches an equilibrium, both with the relationship of the colonists to the company and the relationship of the colonists to the indigenous people. Um, they've certainly forced a space for themselves, but it smooths out. In fact, it takes a pretty big uh, thing to disrupt this equilibrium. Um, and it's a thing that disrupts a lot of equilibriums, and that is Napoleon. He kind of makes a splash. Once Napoleon takes over in the 1790s, um, he goes on a rampage through Europe. He takes a lot of land and the Netherlands is very small, very small. And it's very easy to take. I shouldn't say that they put up a, a huge fight, but you know, against the might of the, uh, Republican French army, it, uh, it, it does fall in 1795. And this poses a problem for Britain, which is France's biggest enemy at this point in time, namely the way that Napoleon operated wasn't just to like call this, this is France now. What he would do is install new republics in these little places um, and invest them with a, a level of autonomy on the condition that they'd be loyal to him because it's a lot easier to manage that way. Yeah. This new republic in the Netherlands, it was called the Batavian Republic, now technically owned the Cape Colony, which, mean that Napole which means that Napoleon technically owned the Cape Colony. Which means that they that he owned a very strategic point uh, in the journey from Europe to uh, India, and India is on the verge of becoming a very important holding for Britain, Britain in this era. They don't want Napoleon to have access to the Indian Sea or the Indian Ocean. Sorry, um, and so they decide that as a preemptive measure, they're going to take control of the Cape Colony. They send nine ships down to Cape Town and they say, this is ours now. They actually get the Dutch uh, uh, government sort of in refuge or in exile in Britain to sort of sign okay. off on this whole thing. 
But I mean, from a political standpoint, that's a pretty hairy move to make, right? For sure. I mean, like, what are they going to say? Basically. But this is the beginning of British involvement in uh, Cape Colony. The VOC ends up actually collapsing in 1799, which is, that's that's a very long time for a company to exist. Um, upon its, its collapse, it uh, transfers all assets to the Batavian Republic, so to the Dutch uh, uh, government, um, but the vassal state version of it. So in that way, Britain managed to keep it out of Napoleon's hands. I mean, it belonged to the VOC, just the VOC under, it, it never officially belonged to a state under Napoleon. What's on paper and what's reality is sometimes different. That's a good point. And that's why they have nine ships sitting in the harbor ready yep. to go. There was a bit of a thaw in the war, kind of 1803, 1804. And during this time, uh, Britain cedes the the colony back to the Batavian Republic as sort of like a show of goodwill. Like, hey, we've stopped fighting. Like, I'll I'll do this one good thing if you guys do this other good thing. You know, there was a lot of yeah. like back and forth diplomacy, but that ends like a year later, right? And um, as the fighting heats up again, the Batavian Republic um, officially permanently turns over Cape Colony to Britain in 1805. And in 1814, when the war ends, the reestablished Dutch government basically confirms that transfer. They don't want the Cape Colony anymore. It had become kind of expensive. The VOC wasn't a thing anymore, so its purpose wasn't really... Strategic? It it didn't exist anymore. There There was no Dutch spice trade anymore. It was gone. The The... British East India Company had taken primacy in that market and they weren't giving it back. The Netherlands knew that they couldn't field a navy on the on the scale of the Royal Navy at this point in time. Uh, everyone kind of knew its day was done. So uh, this was an expense off their plate. Okay. In fact, I think the only people who weren't happy about this transition were the residents of Cape Colony who... Uh, very suddenly found out in 1814 that they were now British citizens and weren't allowed to speak speak uh, Dutch anymore. Interesting. Britain decided they wanted to uh, uh, make the colony British in culture as quickly as possible. As is tradition. <laughs> um, yeah, they outlawed Dutch. They're hoping to convert the colony over to like this this beautiful British stronghold where the sun never sets on the empire, et cetera, et cetera. So do you have like a lot of British citizens moving at this point? Yeah. In 1820, they send uh, about 4,000 settlers down to uh, Cape Colony in in kind of waves. Um, So are these kind of more like, like poor middle class? Are these, are these felons? Like, no, they, it's, it's specifically not a a prison state. They, they are very clear about that. No, it's, it's generally poor people who are taking this opportunity. I mean, the British government is selling them land in, in South Africa at a, at a pittance. And this is an opportunity to start over. Um, And generally, yeah, you'd be someone poor or sometimes have a seedy past, but it's not like an explicitly uh, prison colony like okay. Australia would be, right? Um, so maybe you're getting away from some stuff, but it's not like you're being sent there as punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, they don't really settle with like among the Boers. Um, they tend to settle more along the, the eastern border of the colony, more or less right up along that border with the, the Kosa. Um which creates some tensions. There's okay. a clear lack of understanding of the nuances of how this 
this uh, colony works. works yeah. um, and understandably so. It's not a simple arrangement that they've got worked out. Um, in fact, some of the uh, um, settlers end up going fairly deep into Kosa territory and beyond. Um, Natal, which we talked about in the very first uh, section, um, is still kind of, at least on a map, kind of a, a, a holding um, of the VOC. It's just that they don't have anything there. It's more like they've just kind of sketched out and said, yep, this is ours. Um, but it is separate from the colony. Um, a few settlers actually move into Natal or Natalia Republic. They're calling it now. Um, and yeah, they're, they're, they're pushing things with the locals there. The other thing that they do to really rattle, uh, the, the boars is they start pushing for increased rights for the black members of, of the colony, which they just don't like. They want their slaves. It's, a very yeah it's it's they've they've lived a life that has so long depended on that free labor that giving it up seems ludicrous yes so at this point are are we in the thick of the abolitionist movement or just in like the beginning portions no in britain it's going pretty strong okay um in fact uh 1833 is the year that it's abolished throughout the british empire including South Africa, or sorry, Cape Colony, um, to the absolute outrage of the Boers. I suppose it's not quite fair to call them Boers at this point. It's it's probably, Freeburger uh, is, is a little more fair. It's The terminology gets a little bit muddy there. Mm. In general, the way that it shakes out is that Boers end up being um, uh, Dutch settlers who move out beyond British control after this okay. uh, specific uh event basically um but yeah they're so concerned about their uh established uh economic system is, is really what it comes down to right um because the way that the farms worked under the voc was that the, the farms were tax exempt but they had to pay uh or, or they had to sell their their wares at a fixed rate uh, which was very, very low. So it's kind of like predetermined profit margins sort of yes. thing. Yeah. And it was very, it, it was very difficult for farmers to meet, hence the, uh, hence the slave labor. Um, under the British, they wanted the colony to fund itself. This is no longer like this corporate penny pinching kind of mm -hmm. system. They're hoping to set this up as a more or less independent colony. They don't want to have to worry about it too much. They just wanted to make some money for them. And so they introduced taxation and they say, you can sell your goods for whatever you want. You just um, have to give us a cut. But you have to give us a cut. Um, also, no more slaves. Like, cut that out. Um, they do make a fund available to slave owners to basically pay them for the loss of their slaves. Okay. It's about 1.2 million pounds, which is a lot of money at that point in time. However, and here's the, here's the kicker, you had to go to London to collect. Oh, lovely. Over half a world away. For a second there, I was like, wow, that's very progressive for that time. Yeah. No, it was it was the, the most token of gestures. On one hand, I look at that and go, oh, those poor slaveholders. I feel so bad. Um, on the other hand, I kind of go, yeah, that, that maybe wasn't the best like peacekeeping move on the British part. Like maybe if you no, wanted like a you better can never, start. You can never justify slavery. Um but no, you can certainly not. understand the economic anxiety 
Yes. That would have created at the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. And that's, and that's what these people are worried about. I mean, what they're doing is, is terrible, but they're not so much worried about, it's, it's not that they, it's not that they love the act of enslaving other people. It's that they are, um, they, they don't understand how they'll be able to make a living without it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a system that ends up being kind of thrust on them, which is generally how that system dies, uh, as we've seen through history. But it's important when you're the very, like very, very new owners of colony that you try to at least somewhat get on the good side of the people that you are now ruling over. And the British didn't really do that. In fact, a lot of what they did seemed very hostile. Um, and so the, uh, the Dutch did what they've done every other time that they disagreed with their colonial overlords and they moved away, moved away. You know, they, they, there were other, there were other clashes here, like this whole imposition of, of rights for non-white members of the colony was, it was a bitter struggle. There was a a specific um, uh, incident called uh, Schlachter's neck in, in 1815. There was a a bit of an uprising where a farmer, um, uh, abused a, a koi koi servant and was charged for it. You know, he reported it to the authorities. The authorities charged him for it. He refused to um, answer a summons to appear and, and stand trial. So the authorities went out to get him and he took a stand and, and there was a gunfight. Um, he was killed in the gunfight. There was a, a rebellion came up in support of this farmer. He should be able to abuse his servants all he wants. These British people are being unreasonable. They shot this farmer for no reason. You know, the, the yeah. normal uh, narrative and all of this stuff. Um, it's quickly quashed by the British. If they know anything, it's how to put down a colonial uh, uprising. uprising. They've, uh, they've learned some things in the last 40 years or so uh, over in the Americas. Uh, and you really can't get the, can't let those things get, uh, yeah, get rolling or else they might the turn into, back in the bottle. Yeah. It might turn into trouble. So they go and they, they, uh, hang the five, uh, leading members of this uprising. And it was kind of like at that point, it's like, well, we're, we're out, we're done. As many as 15,000, uh, eventually decide to leave the colony in protest of all of this. It's known as the great trek. And, um, the first place that they decide to go is to follow those those British settlers who were kind of pushing things into uh, Natal. Decided, well, if they can go there, we can go there too. And what they didn't necessarily realize that um, when those British settlers got there in 1820, um, they met a group uh, you might have heard of known as the Zulu. Yes. Let's talk about the Zulu a little bit. The Zulu kingdom was actually founded fairly recently. Like it's got this kind of, you get this idea of it being like very, mythical, very old. ancient. It was founded in 1816. It's very, very new. Um, the kingdom came to prominence under Shaka Zulu. Um, and Shaka had grown up, he'd actually grown up in exile. He was, he was a, a, an illegitimate child of his, his father, who was the leader of the Zulu tribe. And he had grown up fairly far north in what would now be South Africa. Um, among a group called the Mathethwa, uh, which was a confederacy. It was a, a group of over 30 different tribes um, that had banded together for military supremacy in the area. And they'd become very, very powerful. But they were still a confederacy. They were uh, 30 independent groups uh, working together. Okay. 
When Shaka's father died in 1816, he actually had to fight very hard to get that that uh, that um, role as as uh, leader of the, the Zulu because um, because he was illegitimate. But he managed to pull it off. But now he has roots in both the Zulu and the Mathethwa, and he decided that the way to best protect himself and best protect his land as king was to um, incorporate uh, his role with the Mathethwa into his kingship as, as leader of the Zulu. He had himself elected uh, leader of the Mathethwa in the normal um, mechanism, uh, pulling those tribes together and immediately enforced um, sort of a cultural, linguistic and, and religious homogeneity over the entire group and basically said, you are all Zulu now. He coupled this with a really interesting focus on meritocracy rather than um, sort of what had kept them a little more divided, which was these these traditional hereditary roles. Okay. Basically, if you were a very good fighter, you could get much higher in his military. Didn't matter which uh, clan you were from originally. But you better speak Zulu, and you better consider Shaka your king. It worked very well for him. And people who didn't accept that, well, that's too bad, because he was very powerful. Yeah. By the time European settlers started encountering uh, the Zulu, they controlled over 30,000 square kilometers of territory. There was over 250,000 uh, people who considered themselves Zulu. This is a that is very, a much larger group than the settlers. Yeah, they're very big and they're very powerful. And um, Shaka had led them through something of a, a military renaissance. They had uh, uh, they had become very good fighters, very very good fighters. In fact, just before meeting with all these uh, settlers, um, he had gone to uh, war with uh, another group that was fairly large. Uh, known as the uh, Nwandwe, and had won. It was it was years of fighting, and it was brutal, and it was bloody. But he won, and those wars cost between one and two million lives. We're not sure. Wow. Yeah. Holy smokes! No, there was there was it, it was it was a it was a terrible dark time. Um, none of which uh, Cape Colony was aware of. It's just a little bit too far away. This is kind of what I'm talking about in terms of like all of this history happening happening in and around without people really realizing. And it's kind of like how much more of this stuff happened? We'll never know. The Nwandwe were were scattered by this. They they were driven out of their territory. It, it expanded the uh the the Zulu territory up into this this 30,000 square kilometers that we're talking about. And as they fled, um, it caused something called the uh uh, the Mefkan, which was this this mass migration, this scattering. There's, there's this wave of Nwandwe going out. And as they do so, they're driving smaller tribes out from their ancestral homes and either uh, uh, displacing them, killing them, or incorporating them into their tribes. And so there's this genocide of, of all of these tiny tribes disappearing or uh, or or being moved out of the way by this wave of Nwandwe that are, are all fleeing the Zulu. And it clears out this massive stretch of land. Okay. Um, to the point that when the uh, settlers start moving into this area, they're going, where is everybody? <laughs> what a great unoccupied land. 
the vast bulk of the settlers never encountered the Zulu while Shaka was king. There's some speculation that maybe those original British settlers might have encountered um, Zulu under Shaka. And there's some speculation. Again, I don't know how true this is or not, but it's an interesting idea. So it's worth putting out there. There's some there's some speculation that perhaps Shaka got some idea of what Europeans might have been capable of by meeting with these settlers. That maybe it gave them an idea of what to worry about in terms of firearms. That okay. maybe it gave them an idea of what they might be capable of in terms of um, warfare, in terms of tactics. We don't know for sure. But again, it's a very interesting it's idea. It's possible. In 1828, Shaka is, ass- is assassinated by his uh, half-brother, uh, Dingan, who, as soon as Shaka is dead, I mean, he's he's a half-brother, he goes and he kills all of his other half-brothers, um, except one. We'll get back to that. <laughs> but he kills all the other potential heirs to consolidate rule. The one that he leaves alive, he just doesn't consider a threat. He won't ever be king as far as he's concerned. This is the situation that uh, 15,000 now Boer settlers are walking into. This is the land that they're going to try and take. So very politically unstable. Mm-hmm. Militarily unstable. Yeah. And um, extremely dominant. I don't think they're just going to roll over and let them take the land and settle their little farm and live their lives unopposed. I think this is a really good place to stop and take a break. Okay. And when we come back next time, uh, we'll talk about the poor settlers and the Zulus. The brash way in which the British had introduced themselves into the extremely complex dynamic of the Cape Colony had created quite a bit of mistrust and resentment within the extremely independent Dutch settlers. This poor transition not only led to a hard divide within the European population of the colony, it also, through a domino effect, created tension with far more powerful regional forces than the colonists had dealt with previously. Next time on HI 101, we'll pick up with the Boer settlers trying to establish an independent state while beset on all sides. That episode will be up on March 15th. Since HI 101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.